From the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria, this is the Dyson House Podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. Throughout human history, we've created depictions of war through different visual mediums. And the relationship between media and conflict is usually quite complex, whether it be used as a tool for empowerment and freedom, or propaganda and sabotage. But the rapid growth of new digital media is beginning to reshape this relationship in unprecedented ways. Old media institutions are losing their grip on what the public sees. The ubiquity of smartphones has empowered citizen journalism in ways that were simply impossible beforehand. And the full consequences of the role algorithms play in what we see and interact with are only just beginning to become clear to the broader public. For billions of people, instant access to the visuals of war and conflict is simply a few small clicks away. But it does raise the question, is this newfound form of instant access a good thing? Today I spoke with Dr. Sebastian Kampf, Senior Lecturer in Peace and Conflict Studies at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland, to discuss the role a transforming global media landscape is playing in contemporary conflicts, the visualisation of warfare in popular culture, and what this means for traditional media institutions. Hi Sebastian, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. I guess I'd like to start with a bit about your academic trajectory, uh, how you found yourself investigating the role media plays in conflicts and new media specifically. Yeah, thanks Clancy and thanks for having me on the show. So I did my PhD on asymmetric conflicts, state versus non-state actors, and how this relates to ethics of the use of force and the laws of war. And while I was doing this research, I spent half a year of my time at a university in Providence, Rhode Island, called Brown University. And uh, whilst I was there, the professor who acted as, the, as my mentor during that period had really ventured out into researching um, a lot about media and conflict and information technology. And it really uh, triggered an interest in me. And I would have I felt inside that that's sort of what I'd really love to do. But of course, when you do a PhD, you know, you, you need to see that project f- through. You can't add all these things to it. So in a way, I knew that by the time I'm done with my PhD, that's the area I want to eventually get into. And that's what I've done. So started researching this, published a few articles. Now I'm working on a new book that deals with this and that tries to map the new intersection between violent conflict, security, and information technology. And was that a difficult transition between your PhD and then moving into this new area of research? Or, or did you feel like there was plenty of, of sort of pathways for you to, to follow and a lot of threads to pull? Yeah, that's a really great question. Look, in many ways, whilst doing my PhD, I was coming across a lot of texts that were already um, pointing towards information technology and or how what I was doing was relating to um, media. Take, for instance, you know, a classical example of an asymmetric conflict, United States in Vietnam. 
where a lot of the literature talks about Vietnam as the first media war, the importance of television in actually eroding public support back home in the United States for the war that was happening in Indochina. So I kind of had lots of inroads that I knew I could already immediately and intuitively go into. That was relatively easy. At the same time, you know, you're taking on a whole new body of literature on um, on media, on information technology, which requires, you know, a new form of understanding and insights to become literate in that. And this is a, a, a very new area of research. You, you would argue that the establishment of new media has permanently altered the relationship between media and war. Would you be able to give a, a brief overview of what you mean by old and new media? Yeah, I think it's important to get that out and clear straight away. So what when I talk about old media and what a lot of the literature you would read uh, does as well, when they refer to old media, they mean stuff like radio, television, newspapers, right? And when mm -hmm. they refer to new media, um, I essentially digital new media that started coming about from 2002 onwards, we talk about smartphones and social media apps and so on. So that's in terms of old and new to the earlier part of your question. You know, I think that today we are going through one of the most fundamental transformations in information technology in all of human history. Now, that's, of course, a very bold thing to say, but I think there's two particular reasons why this bold statement holds. Number one is that, you know, all the previous media revolutions that we've had, take the printing press or take the radio and so on, all these previous revolutions were very slow to actually evolve and they remained geographically really confined, which means they impacted only on a very small faction of the human population. Today, so today with the digital media revolution, it's something that's actually affecting everyone. And it's affecting everyone within a much shorter period of time, right? So that's reason number one. Reason number two is what makes this transformation so significant and so transformational is that the nature of digital new media is different from old media platforms. Old media platforms essentially were platforms of mass monologue, where information, if you wish, traveled from uh, traveled in one direction from um, you know very small number of people to the masses, masses of public uh, of passive uh, consumers, and so all old media, therefore, at its core, had a very important division, a division between sender and receiver. And digital new media of today essentially breaks down this division. Everyone now is a sender. Everyone now is a receiver with the result that information now travels from the masses to the masses. So in a way, to come back to your question, the transformation of information technology today is unlike any previous one. And in a way, what's interesting is that it's unlike nature has forced various military actors from states and non-state actors alike to actually rethink how they think about security and rethink the role that media is playing in conflict. And that's interesting because historically, war has always been depicted in the media. This isn't something that's new, but quite often when we think of media, it usually takes on a visual sort of aspect. 
how does this digital new media technology change this depiction? Is this purely a visual shift? Yeah, so I think essentially digital new media, you know, what it has done is that it has added new voices to our conversation about war. So the the depiction of war is no longer just the prerogative of the journalist or of militaries, but potentially of everyone. I mean, think about images alone, right? Like in 2016, we as human beings were uploading 1.8 billion pictures on Mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, and Flickr. Not per year or month, not even per week, but every single day. 1.8 billion pictures. I mean, to put this differently, right, on a single day, we are now uploading more images onto these three social media platforms alone than had existed in totality before the (laughs) year 2000. It's a terrifying thought. Yeah, I think it's really remarkable. And I think it uh, it underscores that we are more than ever living in a truly visual age today, right? Images are everywhere. And of course... These images are not all about war. In fact, only a fraction of them probably are. But what new, new media or digital new media has done is to, in a way, enable the average citizen to depict war visually. And in that sense, digital new media has fractalized, some people would have, say, would have said, uh, balkanized the visuality of war. What, what do you mean by that term fractalized or balkanized? In a sense that, you know, in the past we had, you know, the ones who were in control of the flow of visualities in the media, you know, Mm -hmm. classical printing presses like Le Monde and the New York Mm -hmm. Times and Der Spiegel and others, you know, they were the ones who in a way had a monopoly on the dissemination of images about conflict. They are no longer having that monopoly. Instead, we have a huge number of actors other than traditional media platforms. In fact, individuals who now can, citizen journalists and others who who can take a picture on their mobile phone and upload it, which means that that sort of fractalizes. We've got much less uniform perspective. I say yes. And it it does completely transform the landscape because the the idea of a citizen journalist is also a very new concept. and it's not entirely clear what the repercussions of that are just yet, I feel. Uh, before we go on any further, there's a few more terms that I came across in your research or that have been used in your research that I'd be interested in in pulling apart a bit more. Would you be able to define the terms multipolarity and heteropolarity in regard to media consumption? Yeah, no, it's good you're saying this. These these terms are my undoing. I mean, I think <laughs> break them down into something that's a bit more digestible, perhaps. So I use multipolarity and heteropolarity just with regards to the nature and structure of the global media landscape, not necessarily consumption. So let me try to explain this. So multipolarity refers to the nature of the old media landscape, you know, where we had different types of um, media like television, like radio and so on, that had, even though they were different, right, they Mm -hmm. all had one core thing in common. That was the division between sender and receiver that I referred to earlier. Now, so in a sense, we have 
different media pools that are all the same because they all have that division between sender and receiver, right? A handful of people unidirectionally communicate to the masses and the masses are passive consumers. Now, with digital new media, we see the arrival of an entirely different media technology from those old ones, right? It breaks down that division between sender and receiver. And that's what makes them different from old media platforms. But of course, old media hasn't gone away, right? They're still around, they remain extremely influential and politically powerful. But what digital new media has done is to lead in a way to a multiplication and simultaneous diversification of the global media sphere. And that's what heteropolarity indicates. It refers to today's global media landscape where we have old media actors and new media alongside each other, where the media platforms themselves are no longer similar, but different. Is there, would you consider the coexistence between old media and new media to be like a, a mutually beneficial one or is new media just clearly surpassing old media in 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 every way is this just a completely new way of using media and old media does not have the same impact at all wow that's a deep question so a couple of thoughts on that number one is that i think you know there are important things to be borne in mind. Number one is that, you know, it's interesting to note that half of the world's population does not have access to digital media devices, let alone the internet yet. So who are we talking about? Number two, even in those societies like ours, where we, you know, have those technologies and those devices, mm-hmm. does, does that yeah. kind of refer to and apply to every generation that we have or is it more that the younger generation now the digital natives right as opposed to digital migrants so i think you know even within our societies there are differences now at the same time i think what has happened is that we have become seemingly naturally so accustomed to having all this digital media, all cyberspace around us 24-7. And we just assume it to be there, just like running water, something that, you know, just magically appears and is there and we don't really question it that much. And I think in that sense, it has really overtaken and changed the way that we function as societies and the way in which we organize ourselves, how we date, how we book ourselves into any sort of restaurant or taxi, how we navigate geographically around the globe. And, you know, like if you, uh, I think a really nice and neat way to actually find out about this is something I do with my students here at UQ. That is, I actually ask them to try and undergo self-experiment where they try to unplug themselves from <laughs> all digital media for up to 24 hours. And I'd love to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, mixed emotional responses. I mean, it's, you know, the whole exercise is not about succeeding. It's about trying it and it's okay to fail, but then to fill in a self-reflective survey about the experience. And it's really interesting because, of course, you know, that's obviously a generation that has grown up so blindly accustomed to Mm. that technology that stripping it away is like realizing how 
much their life depends on that and how they feel they're missing out of how they're feeling that, you know, that even like addiction, you're, you're longing for it. Um, mm. And, and, you know, it's, it's a way of recognizing the omnipresence of that technology around you through its absence. Well, on, on, on the flip side of this, considering our, our complete fascination with this form of new media, can this be considered a democratizing effect? Uh, is our consumption of conflict through the media uh, more diverse and nuanced? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great question. You know, many experts point to that so-called democratizing effect that digital media has. And they see, you know, digital media as, um, in a way, being, for example, the impetus behind events like the Arab Spring or the Iranian protests or the color revolutions in places like Georgia or Central Eastern Europe. And that's why, you know, they have quite often labeled them the Twitter revolutions or the Facebook revolution. And I think that's an overly optimistic account. Okay. At the same time, you know, there's others who refer to the, the, these democratizing effects as purely meaning that they have an emancipatory dimension, i.e. that they enable citizens to, you know, have a voice, to be able to speak. And I think that's a much better and much less contentious account Though, at the same time, I think we also need to be careful not to overstate this. And the reason why I'm saying this is I think that there's uh, two reasons for that. Reason number one is that, you know, most citizens on our planet are yet to come online. And, you know, the ones who are yet to come online will essentially come from the global south and the global east, i.e. they're living in states that are largely authoritarian regimes or outright dictatorships who in many ways prefer a very highly controlled version of the internet and media. I mean, you only need to look at China's new social scoring system to actually start getting a glimpse of what the future use of social media for very large sections of the human population might actually look like, right? But there's also a second yeah. reason. Second reason why we need to be careful not to overstate this. And, you know, the way our own consumption of media pans out is also not reflected really by diversity and nuance. I mean, yes, we have access to more and more diversified media today than probably any generation before us. But our consumption habits are determined to a very large extent by algorithms, right? These right. things that determine what appears on our screens and what appears on our devices. And these algorithms decide what they think we should know, right? Mark Zuckerberg very famously stated that a squirrel dying in front of your house may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. Mm. So, you know, increasingly, um, we are living in filter bubbles. So, you know, what we have come to know, uh, to know as uh, eco chambers. And, but, you know, in addition to this, there's numerous scientific studies that I find really fascinating because what they've found is that even though we have all this information available, even though we've got all these possibilities to draw on diverse different types of media outlets, our consumer uh, habits have developed in the exact opposite direction. 
How do you mean? Well, basically, what what these studies have found is that now that we have all this choice, we now gravitate towards those media platforms or news outlets that actually replicate rather than unrattle our existing or pre-existing political and ideological worldviews, right? right? Right. So in a way, you know, we are all navigating towards the same kind of filter bubble. It's not just the algorithms. And so I think what, what all of this means is that our media consumption uh, or consumption habits are significantly less diversified today than we would like to think. I'd just like to move on to another point that is related to this potentially emancipatory factor that you mentioned before. Perhaps not. I'm interested to see your answer, but symmetrical wars between sovereign powers that we have seen in the past and that we traditionally think of as what wars are have been replaced by a different sort of asymmetrical conflict between state and non-state actors. Uh, How has new media affected this change in dynamics? I think it has affected it in two ways. So, you know, old media platforms, you know, essentially were so vast, big, expensive infrastructures that were operated by, you know, a whole range of different experts. So essentially, they were so big, so vast, so expensive that for most of history, these were media platforms that were controlled, oftentimes built, but certainly owned and financed by only a few number of actors, predominantly states, empires, and most recently, media conglomerates, right? Like Mm. Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation and others. So which means that non-state actors in most cases simply couldn't afford this type of technology or could only gain access to it with very significant delays. Now, by contrast, digital media today has really empowered non-state actors, and it has done so in ways that no other previous media technology or media transformation actually could, right? It's cheap, it's user-friendly, it's much more difficult to control, everyone can use it. I mean, to give you an example, terrorist organizations in the past could control their attack, but they couldn't control the coverage and the dissemination of their attack via old media platforms. Today, be it a terrorist in Paris or a terrorist in Christchurch, that person live streams the attack on YouTube. This means that with digital new media, the terrorists can control not only the attack, but also the coverage and the dissemination of the attack. So the way these actors, non-state actors, have merged with the media, they in a way have become the media. And so digital new media in this sense has generated a level playing field with regards to the ability to mediatize warfare, a level playing field between state and non-state actors alike. So that's, yeah, sorry. Is the unintended consequence of democratizing political dissidents or democratizing their ability to, to affect a mass audience. Yeah, absolutely. This affecting a wider audience relates to something that I've, I came across, and this is about the role Hollywood and the wider media industry plays in our perception of conflicts. 
um, from reading some of, of your research, I understand that there's kind of more to the role that media plays in Hollywood and our perception of war than at first meets the eye. Would you be able to go into that a little bit? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, this is one of the new topics that I'm researching and I'm actually involved in the production of a film documentary that will come out later on this year called Theatres of Command that will look precisely into that close, tightly knit connection between Pentagon and filmmaking. But maybe a way into, into that. So, you know, one of my favorite writers on a lot of these things is Walter Benjamin. Um, Frankfurt School, critical theorist, um, you know, early 20th century. And Walter Benjamin said, amongst other things, that history decays into images, not narratives. I think that's a very powerful statement because, you know, we all inherently understand that there's something unique about a visual, about an image that we don't have with a text. Like, for example, when you... Uh, you know, when we have uh, a television show or a documentary and it says this, this this sort of warning at the beginning, oh, like viewers are being forewarned that some of these images, they might find these images disturbing and so on, right? We've seen this before. We've never seen this in a book, right? You don't see that note saying like people who are going to read this book, the next few pages might find this text really disturbing. So we yeah. understood in a way that there's something really unique about images, and that's perhaps why Walter Benjamin said history decays into images, not narratives. I.e., you know, there's an importance of images and films in generating our memory of the world and our perception of historical events. And militaries have understood this and realized this for a very, very, very long time. And that's the reason why there has been this close collaboration between many militaries and the filming industry. I mean, in many ways, that's a global phenomenon, right? But the most intimate relationship of this kind, at least from within democratic countries, is the one that we find in the United States. And recently, there have been successful um, freedom of information requests that were done. And so the Pentagon had to actually release all the data that shows the number and the name of the productions that they have been involved in. And so now we know that they have been involved in in over 1,200 blockbuster movie productions, that they've been involved in in over 1,000 television shows. You know, and these are productions that range well beyond war-themed films. They include reality TV shows, they uh, include cooking shows, family reunions, sci-fi, even comedy. Wow. It's really striking. It's like that is very striking. Yeah, anything you can imagine. And of course, you know, it's the Transformers, it's the Marvel series, it's Top Gun, it's Black Hawk Down, all these kinds of things. But, you know, if you think about the sheer scale and scope, it's just breathtaking and beyond anything that we had known before. Even the biggest uh, conspiracy theorists would have never dreamed of that kind of figure, right? I feel like the conspiracy theorists will be having a field day with this one. It's yeah, yeah. With, you know, with, truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking about the same thing when I when I saw these freedom of information requests. But you know, like it's it's always <laughs> when you, in, in that kind of field of research, you you get the conspiracy theorists come out very very quickly, and so it's important to <laughs> base your your research on what it is that we can actually 
find evidence for, right? And with the freedom of information requests, you know, we now have a trove of uh, of data. But you know, what's really interesting, just to to make another comment here, is that you know, why is it that we have these really two strange actors, right? You've got the mm. state military, and then you've got a private actor, an economic actor, filming industry, right? What is it that brings them together? And what's fascinating doing this type of research is that it becomes very clear that both sides benefit. It is, in the words of Phil Strubb, who was the longtime head of the Pentagon's entertainment liaison office, yes, they have an office. Right. Only there in order to for filmmakers in Hollywood to come and try to get the Pentagon on board. That guy who was in charge of that office for 37 years, right, raising his mm. thumbs up or thumbs down over Pentagon involvement in these productions, according to him, you know, he says this is a relationship of mutual exploitation. I think that's a wonderful phrase. And what you see is that, you know, the Pentagon gains influence over script writing, influence over the portrayal of its own forces. And of course, all of this is aimed for a boost in recruitment and retention purposes. Then filmmakers or film directors, on the other hand, or on the other side, they get access to, you know, the real soldiers, billions of dollars worth of military kit, which allows for higher realism and authenticity and you know, thereby much higher box office revenue. Just to give you one example, take the very first of the Transformers series. Um, you have the, the, that film had a budget of around 350 million US dollars, which you know, for you and me is a lot of money. For a blockbuster film, it's not. But it featured very prominently one of the latest uh, fighter jets that the US Air Force had. And that single fighter jet alone costs over 450 million US dollars, right? So you can see how it's really uh, impossible for Filmmaker 8, first of all, to buy this, let alone to rent it somewhere, right? But having this in the film is, of course, a very exciting feature that filmmakers really like. Okay, I'm starting to understand the, uh, the wider picture here and this relationship that that emerges from this it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic you said that you're going to be making oh you're going to be in a documentary on this topic yeah so i'm i'm not the not the main brain behind this that's a colleague of mine uh, roger stahl who is an associate professor in the united states at the university of athens um, Georgia in the US, uh, who has written a lot about Militainment.inc and who I've been collaborating with for a number of years. And he is now, and he's he's always been doing film documentaries, really high quality ones actually. And so now, um, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the co-producers on that. And it's dealing with exactly that kind of, you know, the relationship of mutual exploitation. What is it that makes the Pentagon and Hollywood collaborate? What's the scale and scope of that? And basically debunking the idea of what the Pentagon has been trying to sell, namely that it's very, you know, minor, it's very insignificant, it's not very deep and hasn't happened that often. And, you know, once you actually look at it now and we've got all this freedom of information requests there, it's like it's been far more pervasive, way deeper than anyone would have thought possible. And you know what's interesting is that 
you know, when I, as a researcher, submit an article and it gets published, I need to actually fill in a disclaimer when I need to identify if I have a conflict of interest, right? Did I get money from someone that might have influenced me in writing in a particular way? There's no such thing with Hollywood films, right? <laughs> they don't have to have this disclaimer or, you know, take the warning that we have on cigarette packs, like, you know, causes cancer and that sort of stuff. Like, you know, would you as a consumer still be willing to pay the amount of dollars you pay to watch the Transformers or the Marvel series movies if you actually knew how deeply involved the Pentagon has been? And, you know, that involvement entails changing of the script not be critical to the military. Essentially, it's a highly subsidized form of propaganda. I only have one last question left. Um, and this is in regards to the future. This shift to new media consumption, as it stands, seems irreversible. And as you've pointed out, has permanently changed the way we consume uh, the visual representation of war, primarily. If we look towards the future, do you see this new form of media usurping traditional media organizations completely? You know, in some ways, I think digital new media has started to do this. And I think the ones who are suffering the most uh, you know, are print media. I mean, they're in a really dire economic crisis. And you know, whilst they're trying very desperately in all sorts of different ways to experiment, and have different marketing models in order to, you know, essentially still make the money and be uh, affordable. We do not yet see any real solution to the crisis that they're in. But this crisis, you know, in a way doesn't affect or doesn't extend to other traditional media platforms. First and foremost, uh, television, which still remains extremely strong and extremely economically healthy. Now, Will this change? We don't know, right? What we know is that we are only at the beginning of the digital media revolution. It only started in 2002. So, you know, what will the global media landscape look like in another 17 or, you know, 40, 50 years time? I mean, the optimist in, in, in me tells me that, you know, humans in a way will always long for and appreciate good quality journalism. And I think they will continue to recognize that good journalism is actually essential for the well-being of our democratic societies. Now, will this type of journalism still be provided by traditional media in the future, or will digital new media outlets have taken over that role? I don't know. Or, you know, as the perhaps skeptic in me might think, are we entering a future with mediocre journalism and the continued demise of traditional news outlets? Maybe we should chat again in a decade from now. Sebastian, I think that's something we may have to do because this is a fascinating topic and a fascinating area to be involved in. I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciated the time that you've made for it. Thanks, Clancy, and thanks for having me. If you want to know more about the topics explored today, you can find a free online course by Dr. Camp called Global Media, War and Technology at edx.org. You've been listening to the Dyson House Podcast. <laughs>